So, one thing that we have to talk about is the Alter Rebbe says that in the majority of cases, Jews will undergo martyrdom. Um, and that has a, without getting into the details right now of how to format the question, that has a, a question that if this Mesir Snefesh, this willingness to suffer so as not to deny the truth of God, comes from an intrinsic, innate part of every Jew, the Chachm of their godly soul, one would expect it to be a universal phenomenon, not in a majority of cases. So how do we explain that? And the other idea, um, which in chapter 19, it becomes more of a problem, how he explains um, the Chachm there, but you can already see it implicitly over here, is it has this kind of sense that this is beyond our control. The wording he uses is, it's as if you, you, you cannot deny Hashem. And that obviously creates questions with free will. Okay. Um, so those are the two things I want to talk about. Okay. Now, what I want to do, therefore, is divide the class up very clearly. The first part of the class, we deal with the question of the majority of cases and completely ignore the question about free will. And the second part of the class, we're going to talk about the free will question. Okay. Um, There are three points I want to make about the issue of the majority of cases. Okay. Um, and I'm going to just say them now and then I'll go over each one in detail. Number one is I want to talk about the idea of nature. When something is natural, what does that mean? And the context that it's often used in classic uh, Torah sources, including a Hasidus. When we say something's nature, what do we mean by that? Um, the second th- thing that I want to talk about is the um, role of education. Okay. And the third thing that I want to talk about is free will. And I said that free will, we're going to talk about it in the second part, right? So this topic of free will is going to be different than the question of free will itself and how this relates to this whole... Okay, so I'm going to make a, a statement and the statement is going to sound wrong and I would like you as a mental exercise to justify my statement as true, okay? If something is a dog, then it has four legs. I know that it would seem not true. I want you to do the work of trying to justify what I said. If something is a dog, it has four legs. A typical dog has four legs? But that's not what I said. I said if it's a dog, it has four legs. Not only if something is a dog, it has four legs. No, that's, I didn't, I didn't say all four legs. All dogs have four legs? Yeah, all dogs have four legs. Major- the nature of a dog is that. Now, if I'm not speaking about the physical, actual having of legs, but I'm talking, in other words, like this. if you see a dog with three legs, what immediately goes into your mind is, first off, you think of it, as if that's weird, it's a three-legged dog, right? And you think of like, what happened to the other leg, right? And your choices are some kind of a physical accident, right? Or damage occurred. 
or some kind of developmental abnormality occurred, right? Because a dog, its nature is to have four legs, right? Do you see what I, you see, does that make sense? Okay. Um, in other words, that when we're thinking of the nature of things, one way to think about the nature of things is not in a, in a, in a deterministic manner, but the nature of something means what is its characteristic, okay? So the characteristic of being a dog is to have four legs. Now, sometimes something could occur that might interfere with the dog having four legs, right? A genetic abnormality, you know, a physical accident, right? But if I'm talking about not the physical existence of the leg or not, but I'm talking about the relationship to being a dog and having legs, that those, those don't change that, right? So if I were to then say that every human being has the capacity to speak, every human being um, is rational, right? Those are true if, I'm, if I understand I'm talking about the nature of a person rather than the, the, uh, the, the, the actualized reality of every individual human being who's ever existed. So yeah, those are just two different layers of meaning. Yeah? Okay. So. If it is the nature of a Jew to undergo martyrdom rather than deny the truth of God, what would we expect to happen? Would we expect it to happen in? I'm going to give you two different options. Okay. Would we expect it to happen in all cases? In a minority of cases? Would we expect it to happen in um, only cases that share a certain characteristic? Or would we expect it to be pretty randomly distributed with the majority of cases? So go back to the dog, right? Dog, the nature of dogs is to have four legs, yes? Are there dogs without four legs? Okay. Is, what, what do we expect? The nature of dogs that frozen, we expect that all dogs have four legs? No, because we understand that there could be things that prevent or interfere, right? Would we expect that those things that prevent and interfere be a majority of the cases, half and half, a minority of the cases? What would we expect, not knowing anything about the, nature, about the world? The majority. The majority of what? Like a minority. Right, minority would have yeah. less than four legs or more than four legs, and the majority would have four legs, right? Um, which, by the way, is, as, as, as a side point, this has an interesting um, cognitive uh, uh, bias, which is that if something is the, if you encounter something the majority of the time, you interpret that as the nature and characteristic of the thing, even if it's not. Let's say you lived in a place where there was a lot of radiation, the dogs didn't develop normally, right? You would, you would come to the conclusion that the nature of dogs is to have, I don't know, five legs or something, right? So because... The nature of things, the nature of something is what manifests in the majority of cases. We often infer that a majority of our experiences reflects on the nature of things. But, okay. Yeah? Can you repeat what you said about um, the Jews undergoing... So if the, if the nature of a Jew is to undergo martyrdom rather than deny God, what would I expect to happen? I would expect that every Jew would always undergo martyrdom? Yeah. No, I would expect that... Most. Most, most right? The majority. And now, I would expect that that martyrdom shouldn't be linked to any specific characteristic that is independent of being Jewish, such as levels of piety, righteousness, right? 
Just like I don't expect having four legs having to do with the size, shape, breed, or gender of the dog, right? Otherwise, not the nature of dogs. It's having to do with those other more specific subsets, right? Okay. So if I think of every Jew having an inherent thing called Chachma, and the nature of Chachma is to make it impossible for one to deny God, right? then assuming nothing has gone wrong, what would I expect is that a Jew when faced with martyrdom would choose martyrdom rather than deny God, right? But things can go wrong for whatever reasons, right? And therefore, in reality, I wouldn't expect that to happen in all cases. I would expect that to happen in the majority of cases. So you see how the saying of the majority is not actually contradictory to the idea, it actually reinforces the idea? Because if we're saying something is the nature of a thing, it's the nature of that thing. It doesn't make it a, 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 a fundamental rule of existence. There's no rule of existence that says that dogs can only exist when they have four legs. Right? It is a characteristic of the species to grow four legs. So when that doesn't happen or when something remo- or when there is a or, or, or when for the, there's, there's not four legs for some other reason, it's because of either something going wrong in the developmental process or something externally, right? But there's some kind of external thing, something has gone wrong. Okay. Similarly, we have this with the childhood development, right? You all become parents, God willing, and your children will develop. Are you, you, you want to know, is, is, is my child not speaking right now? Is this okay or is it not okay? Right? And that's based on the idea that children, the nature of human being is to speak. Speaking emerges at a certain point in development and... And now, could things interfere with that? Sure, they could, but, you know, and you want to know that, because if there are things interfering, you'd like to address them, right? But if, you're, if your three-month-old baby can't talk, that's, <laughs> that's, not, that's normal, right? You know, if your three-year-old toddler can't talk, you should have seen a doctor a while ago about that, right? So, we, and in other words, there's a way that sometimes we think in this very rigid, mechanistic way. You know, one plus one has to equal two. But many things in life aren't like that. Many things in life are like the nature of a dog to have four legs, the nature of people to be rational to speak. Right? What's the nature of friendship? Does it die out or does it reinforce itself? The majority of cases. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't, before the majority, the nature of friendship is that reinforces itself. Because let me just give you a simple definition of friendship. I'm talking about adult friendships, okay? Friendship is where you invest in the other person mutually. Right? So, what make, who are your friends? The people that you invest time, money, emotion into your relationship and their well being, and they also do the same. Now, if you have two people that have that kind of interaction with each other, what happens over time? Do they get closer or further away? They get closer. And what they're getting closer makes them invest even further, right? Now, could things happen that interfere with that? Sure, things could happen, right? Which is why in the majority of cases, real friendships get stronger over time, and sometimes, you know, things happen, right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, a, it's a quite intuitive way of thinking. It's just when you learn too much like hard sciences and math, it, it trains you not to think that way about reality and then you get into these weird kinds of things. But yeah, we, we rarely expect that the nature of things happens in 100% of cases. Like, even when you do a science experiment, and you guys remember from high school and you like, did like a physics class and you do some science experiments, right? Why do you have to do the experiment multiple times? Because it's not always the same 
right? Because there's all sorts of other little things that'll interfere, right? And you want to, and, and those things should be arbitrary and random relative to the experiment, so eventually they should cancel each other out if you do it enough times, and then you can see the pattern, right? Good? Okay. Um, by the way, if it, what you could find is that there are certain specific things that regularly interfere. So you could find a pattern of what interferes. Like, so you have like, for instance, you would, you know, I'll give you an example. We all know that things that are heavier don't fall faster, right? You know that, right? If you have a light object and heavy object, they'll go at the same time, they'll fall. So if you drop a ball, like a, like a, a bowling ball and a feather, they'll drop at the same rate. Why not? Not lighter. Lighter. No, it's not because lighter. So, so what you have to do is you have to start realizing that sometimes there's certain things that break the pattern and that itself becomes a pattern. You learn this new thing that in terms of falling in of itself, the weight doesn't matter. But what can matter is air resistance relative to density. And so a feather, which has a lot of surface and very little weight, the air resists it. So you, do. Anyway, so you have a similar thing. Like we might discover that a certain subgroup of Jews rarely engages in martyrdom. And you say, ah, maybe they have something in common that interferes with the Chachma. Okay. By the way, would you like a historical example of that? There's this thing called Jewish philosophy. You've heard of Jewish philosophy? Okay. Traditionally, is Jewish philosophy a major part of Orthodox Jewish life? Questions about the nature of God and providence how prophecy really works, the real, the real purpose and function of angels. Is it like a standard part of Orthodox Jewish life? Is this stuff that we learn and study in yeshivas? Chabad is a little bit of a weird exception to this, but like, I'm serious, it's a really, really weird exception to this. Like, you know, your, average, I mean, your average yeshiva student has never learned anything about the nature of God and providence other than some basic platitudes about being righteous, reward, and punishment. God has your good interests best interests and like, you know, don't rely on miracles, stuff like that. But that's about it. Why? Well, there's an interesting phenomenon. There was in Spain and Portugal and the term was Andalusia, but that region of the Jewish world and also into North Africa, um, Egypt, there was a very strong culture of Jewish philosophy. Of, in other words, if we start to think of all of our major works of Jewish philosophy, we tend to see that they come from those regions. Okay. Um, in the Ashkenazic world, France, Germany, um, and, and in, starting to Eastern Europe, we didn't really have that. We don't, you know, in fact, you had a lot of antagonism against that. Um, now is an interesting phenomenon. Remember yesterday we spoke about martyrdom and how the people that underwent martyrdom feel about, or willing to, felt about people who compromised. So there was a period called the Crusades. You've heard of the Crusades? Mm-hmm. It was very, very horrific for the Jewish people. The Crusades were in what we call Christian Europe, the Ashkenazic area. And what was the more or less overall community-wide um, response to the challenge of martyrdom versus apostasy? is that people chose martyrdom. Not saying that everybody, there was a minority, but it was individuals here, it was individuals there. What about um, once Spain became Christian and you had this, and, and there was this large, um, very robust um, 
approach to Judaism was very philosophical and very, um, very much focused on trying to understand the nature of the religion. Um, and then when Spain became fully Christian and they got rid of all the Muslims, they decided once we got rid of the Muslims, the next thing is to get rid of the Jews. And they told the Jews, you can convert or you can leave without your money, by the way. What did the Jews do? What? Let's just say it was not the overwhelming majority of people who left. I don't know what the numbers are. There's some debates about this. Um, and this was very traumatic for the Jewish world. The Ashkenazim looked very askant at this. And many people in the Sephardic countries were very... Like, it was, became a, quite of a... This, this People who seemed to be the pinnacles and the scholars and knew the truth of Judaism where people had a very hard time leaving their social and economic station. And so there was developed, kind of after the Spanish expulsion, this kind of sense that like that whole approach just is not, there's something corrosive about making the religion too, too intellectually appealing, grounding it too much on, on our reason. Um, and so you, you know, have different shifts. Kabbalah starts to become very popular at that point mysticism, or I'm not, um, and there's a backlash, okay? I'm oversimplifying something, but I'm just trying to illustrate this as, 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 as a point. So there is definitely an attitude, now Chabad does not subscribe this attitude, but there is an attitude amongst a large part of the Orthodox world that reason undermines one's devotion to God, and when therefore you should not apply reason to your relationship with God. And that has many aspects. So, but one aspect is, again, even without knowing the citizens, is understanding that, that you know, cultures that very much were reason-based in their approach to Judaism seem to, the, the degree of martyrdom seem to go way down. I thought it's not based on intellectual. It's not. It's not. But things can interfere, right? And maybe one can make an argument. One of the things that inter- could interfere is the insistence on framing your entire relationship with God around reason makes it maybe harder for the Chachma to manifest. Which leads me to the next thing. The next thing I was going to say was about education. The Chachma is not the totality of our godly soul, and the godly soul is not the totality of the human being, right? So, there is a question about two things. The power of the Chachma, okay, and the relevance of the Chachma. I'll explain to you what I mean. One thing the author was going to say later on is how come how come we don't engage mar- how don't we don't we don't have this this sense of martyrdom rather than like keep a small rabbinic requirement how come it, how come it only how come it only comes in matters of apostasy of a desire of heresy and that's because on some level the chachma only the chachma only seems relevant in these kind of big issues okay and one can make an argument that although the Chachma is incredibly powerful, and like we spoke about yesterday, completely overrides every other aspect of the person's soul and psyche, but the Chachma itself has to, so to speak, as the author says later on in chapter 19, has to be woken up. Now, if in my conception of things, this is not such a big deal, it's not so fundamental, maybe the Chachma can keep sleeping. You know, it could be that the way we relate to Judaism and God prior to the moment of martyrdom, makes ourselves more or less sensitive to things. And so you're more... Or less, the, so while the act of Messiris Nefesh 
doesn't depend on anything about who you are. But it could be that the, who you are as a person might make it more or less likely for that mysterious nefesh dynamic to, awake, to rise and wake up inside the person. So let me give you an example. This gives you, as, using as, a, as an example from halacha. There is a rule in, in halacha that you are not allowed to give a um, public honor to a sinner. That's a general rule in halacha. Did you know that? Someone is a sinner, you're not allowed to honor them in public. That, that should make an intuitive amount of sense, yes? Yeah? Okay. So, can you call up a Shabbos desecrator to the Torah? Can you count them as part of a minion? If there's someone who desecrates Shabbos. Yes? You're nodding your head yes? Why? Because yes. you've seen it done. Yeah. Okay. It's not so simple. You know what the standard, the, the standard justification for allowing that is? It's a combination of A, we shouldn't consider that person a sinner because they're probably ignorant of the significance of Shabbos. Isn't it also the way to actually test preach on this, like in public on purpose with witnesses, with being warned? No, that's for the death penalty. But you do need the person, no, so it's like this. There is, there's two, there's two lines of reasoning and they're, they're somewhat independent. One line of reasoning is that not everybody who is a, who's violating Shabbos is a Shabbos violator. If a person didn't grow up religious, a person doesn't have the, right, then they're not a violator, they, they don't realize it's Shabbos, they don't appreciate that what Shabbos is, they don't appreciate that this is a, right, or for instance, maybe they don't know that this is forbidden on Shabbos, right, or they don't know how big of a deal it is to do this particular thing, right, so that, that's one line of reasoning that a person could take. The other line of reasoning you could take is that if this person is, if showing this person, um, or counting them as part of the minion, or giving them an aliyah, will help them become Shabbos observant, that might be a different story. Okay, and you can see how those two things can play off of each other. Okay, but let's talk about a situation um, where we'll move to a different sin. What about intermarriage? Can you give an aliyah account for minion someone who's intermarried? So here's an interesting, there was a rabbi named um, uh, Rabbi Weiss. He's known, if you ever become a famous rabbi, then you lose your name and you become an acronym, a book, or a city. So he's known as the Minchas Yitzchak, which is the name of his famous halachic work. Um, he lived in the 20th century. He was rabbi in Manchester and eventually became rabbi in Meisharm, chief rabbi of Meisharm, Yushalayim. So he was of the opinion that one should not give an aliyah and not count as a minion someone who violates Shabbos. This response is from, I believe, the 1960s. But he acknowledged the validity of the other position of, of giving them an aliyah and counting for a minion, and it related to some other issue that he was talking about. But he says, but this does not extend to intermarriage. What was his argument why it doesn't extend to intermarriage? So you have to know a little bit of history. In the 1960s, if you were to go to a conservative synagogue or a reform temple, were there a lot of people who didn't keep Shabbos? Were there a lot of people who were intermarried? There were not. Very, very rare. Do you know why? There was a very strong sense, even people who didn't think that you have to keep Shabbos, either because they didn't think you have to keep halacha per se, like reform, or you didn't think you have to keep halacha as orthodoxy understands what halacha is. Still in a sense, like, there are red lines. Like, a Jew has to marry a Jew. And so his point was, 
You can make an argument that a person doesn't appreciate the significance of Shabbos, maybe. So I don't agree with that argument, but I understand the argument. You can't make an argument a person doesn't, like a person maybe doesn't appreciate the importance of marrying a Jew. Like, like they're just denial of Jewish peoplehood. And he differentiated these two things. Now, is that true nowadays? I would argue that it's not true nowadays. In other words, there's something different about how people are. The same people who, when you had a period of time where you have, where you have a large number of people, probably the overwhelming Jews in the United States, who did not believe in the intrinsic importance of keeping halacha as is understood in orthodoxy, but did have a very clear sense that, you know, Jews have to marry Jews and, you know, questions about, you know, technically the person convert appropriately or not is a separate issue, but in general, just intermarriage, having interfaith couples is, and now that's just not true anymore. It tends to be, I won't say absolutely, but it tends to be, and most of the people who don't think you have to keep Shabbos also don't necessarily see something so wrong. So you could see how you could have somebody whose chachma might wake up. You know, you think you're, you know, somebody who like, my, 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 my grandparents, Al-Basham, who like, keeping Shabbos and these types of things, it doesn't really raise any red, it doesn't red flags, the, the red line doesn't show up, but then intermarriage is like, oh, it's a big deal, right? And you could also understand that a person could get a very different education where Shabbos is that thing, right? Okay? And you go the opposite extreme, right? You could have somebody who like even, uh, even idolatry, if they haven't gotten necessarily been educated in the right way, might not relate to idolatry as idolatry itself. I think of Avraham looking for God and worshiping idols. I, I told you a story of a friend of mine from Yeshiva who became Catholic looking for Orthodox Judaism without realizing it, right? So you could have things like that, right? So in other words, it, it, it's very plausible to say that the, the sense that the Chachma just wakes up and this part of you never knew takes over and you has a lot to do with your prior understanding of what it means to be Jewish and God and this. And it's not like a, it's not like a program thing, but, but you know, a person who, who, before they get to that, moment of the, the test of martyrdom doesn't relate to something as fundamental to their being a Jew is much more or less likely to have the Chachma wake up in them. Okay? It's actually interesting in, 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 in there's a famous Hasidic discourse called Basi Lagani. Um, some of you might have encountered it around the 10th of Shvat, Yud Shvat, the time the Rebbe became Rebbe. So there, in the, in the discourse, the, the previous Rebbe, he says that, the, he speaks about the same idea, but he, there he says something very different. In time, he says this, the Chachma, the serious Nefesh, that wakes up when it comes to matters of idolatry and martyrdom and things like that. But um, in, in, in that discourse, the previous Rebbe says it has to do with things that were called Isure Kares, sins where one's soul gets cut off. Which, you know, is a broader category. It includes Shabbos, eating chametz on Pesach, family purity, eating on Yom Kippur, right? And then one could say that's a contradiction. But you could also say it has maybe to do with a level of kind of education and awareness of things. Someone who appreciates on some level how these, are so, these mitzvahs are so fundamental, maybe the chachma wakes up much more likely. It's more, the person's a little more sensitive to those things. So that, that could definitely be some part of it. And going back to what I'm saying, if you then make your whole Judaism about your rational commitment to God, you might have a lot of, you might have a lot of um, resistance or, 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 or shielding 
that prevents the Chachma from, from kind of waking up and taking over in a martyrdom case. So that's also, and I'm not saying this is like, this is for sure true, but I'm saying that this is something that, that does make sense. Um, it does seem consistent with what it says in Chassidus. Um, which would mean, very interestingly, you could have a person who's not a pious person, a very big sinner, but there's nothing off about their education. Like I mentioned before, like the, 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 the it's a derogatory term, the shagets of the shtetl, right? The guy, he's, he's Jewish, but he, he, he doesn't keep anything. Why? Because I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm a lowlife, right? But there's, but there's nothing, he hasn't engaged that step of rationalizing that his, his sins aren't sins and things like that. So for him to engage martyrdom, like God is real, Torah is real, like on some level that, that education, that, that awareness is there, okay? Whereas you might have another person who maybe is very, very pious and very devout, but their whole thing is around their rational commitments and, the, and how Judaism makes sense based on their morality. And, you know, it could be that in time, trying times, you know, Christianity is not such an immoral way of looking at things and you can rationalize things away and they might end up the chief rabbi of Rome converted to Christianity after the Holocaust. Did you know that? Not because of persecution. Because he found more religious meaning there. Now, I would say that's probably an indictment of probably how he related to Judaism beforehand too, right? See what I'm saying? So it's true that if we look at the Chachma itself, it's the kind of this absolute, the Chachma just... It can't abide by the denial of God and it just takes over the person. But there is a question, the Chachma is not the totality of the person. And how, how open and sensitive is the person to the relevance of this thing touching that Chachma? And that, that, that may very much affect you know, why certain places or communities or types of people are more or less likely to engage in mysterious nefesh. So even though it's a majority of Jews overall, there's a minority that don't. And that minority um, may have to do with this, this, this factor. But then what that would mean, though, and this goes back to what we said, remember we spoke about how Messias Nefesh has this kind of sense of authenticity to it? That means if a person does engage in an act of idolatry, does not um, undergo martyrdom, it's not possible to say they're doing it wholeheartedly. There's on some level a kind of internal dissonance that they're, that they're that maybe not consciously, but they're somehow not being aware of. Words, it, it would fall from this that even the Jew who does, God forbid, submit to baptism or adopts Islam or whatever it is, um, on some level, it's not really wholehearted. It's not really genuine because they're only able to do it because they're not in touch with a deeper part of themselves. Had they been in touch with a deeper part of themselves, they wouldn't have been able to do it. Okay, that, the, the, the corollary of saying that education sensitivity plays a role in this, in, in, in the awakening of the Chachma, means that, you know, a, that you're saying that even a Jew who does, God forbid, choose not to undergo martyrdom is not really choosing to worship idols completely. Okay? It's kind of like, and we know this, in, in a lot of times we make decisions that are in moments of... Um, anger or under the influence, we're doing things where we're not really in touch with ourselves wholly and those decisions, right, where they're not wholehearted. They're not, they're not, they're not genuine. Maybe, that doesn't mean we're not responsible for them, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Just, I'm having a hard time, like, separate, I think, like, the way that the word piety is being defined is, like, a little 
not clear to me because I do think education, like for a rabbi to, like as you said, like for a rabbi to be able to convert to Christianity after, it was obviously like a testament to his relationship prior to that. But like to say that somebody who has a bigger education and is able to internalize what they learn doesn't have a bigger chance of doing this. Because like, the question is, what are you being educated to? If you're, if you're educated, it's just a very simple truth. God took us out of Egypt, gave us the Torah, and uh, he's, he's, he's our God. And like, like, if you don't have, that message is not complicated, Mr. Snuff is going to be quite easy for you when the Crusaders come, right? But if now you have a, a, this profound thing, well, the nature of a human being is a rational being, and a rational being seeks out truth. And so to speak, the, the thing that corresponds to the human need for truth is a being that embodies truth. And, then, and you build up that, and Judaism is like the most idealized form of manifestation. Well, then, like, okay, so, like, Judaism is a better version, but Christianity is a plausible, like, and if that, and you can be very, very devout and very pious, and, and in a certain sense, it's not, it's not so simple. And if, and if, and if really that's what's driving all of your piety, then, you know, we, 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 you, know you could rationalize away a lot of things. And people have done that. So then you could say vice versa, that a simpleton has, a, has an advantage when it comes to this research. You could, but not necessarily, because you could have someone who's just a very big scholar, um, and they may even be a big scholar of, 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 in a theological sense, but not in a way that undermines that simple point. And that's the kind of the Chabad. The Chabad approach quite emphatically is that the complexity is around fleshing out that simple point rather than substituting it for something else. You know, like... Um, let me put it to you very simple, yeah? We're coming up to Pesach. What's the most important part of Pesach? Seder. What? Seder. The Seder, okay. What's the most important part of the Seder? Magid. Okay, what's the most important part of Magid? Talking You're good. This is Exodus. very good. What? Talking about Exodus. What's the most important Telling part? over the story. That's what Magid is. What's the most important part of Magid? What? Maybe asking questions. Telling your children, we were slaves in Egypt mm-hmm. and Hashem took us out. Mm-hmm. It's not a complicated message. And it's really important that you don't lose that message. You're going to learn a lot of Hasidic on I'll tell right now. I was going to say this tomorrow, but I'm saying now because it's relevant now. The most important thing is to convey to your actual children and the children in Israel is the very simple message, we were slaves and Hashem took us out and now we have a bond with Him. And that's what Judaism is. If that, you have that, like, okay, you know, but you start complicating that, you start, not, yeah, anytime you flesh anything out, it becomes complicated. But if you start messing with that, the minute you start making Judaism about values and ideals and principles and theologies and ethics, you're like, there's not Judaism anymore. Not that Judaism doesn't necessitate and entail those things. You see the point that I'm making? It's a very simple, basic thing, you know. God created the world. He made a covenant with Avram. And he fulfilled the covenant by taking us out of Egypt and, and, and made us his people. And that's what it means to be a Jew. And as long as like you're sensitive to that on some level, like you would expect the person 
But it, but if that gets twisted and distorted into other things, you know. Is there any such case where, like, with zero education or any knowledge, that that would be the nature? Yes, because again, the the issue is the issue is these things can have an influence. But so on the one hand, the ch- there's so like the, on the one hand there's the 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 chachma is predisposed to like this wake up and this mysterious nefesh and this martyrdom and all these steps of things. But there is also like the the it comes through the how the person experiences things, right? But some people are very sensitive by nature, and some people are not very sensitive by nature. I mean, there was a journalist if I remember his name was Daniel Pearl. Yeah, Daniel Pearl. He was captured by by uh, ISIS. And they beheaded him, and he was not by any means what we would call a pious Jew. Um, I, I do not even know if he, he made a point of self-identifying as a Jew throughout his life. Um, but the last thing he said before they beheaded him, is this is recorded, I don't recommend you watch it because, you know, there's no reason to watch such a horrible thing. Um, but the last thing he said before they beheaded him on video was that I am and have always been a Jew. Now, what prompted him to say that? Didn't live his life as that was the most important thing to him. Okay. But I'm just saying is that the specifics of how and when Mysterious Nefesh comes out probably does have something to do with, you know, a person's relationship with that. So again, you might ignore your Jewish identity. You might ignore your belief in God your whole life. And that probably would have very little effect on Mysterious Nefesh. But if you create a substitute version of what it means to be a Jew... Or what it means to believe in God, that might have a that might have a negative effect on Mesiris Nefesh. And actually, um, the Talmud says something of this effect. It speaks about the through three great um, prophets, Hanani, Meshav, Azariah, and um, they were they um, were ordered to bow down to an idol by Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king, Babylonian, and they refused. And they were thrown into a burning furnace. And a miracle happened. They survived. The Talmud says, had they been tortured, they would have capitulated. And Hasidus says, the reason why is because some of their commitment was grounded in their prophetic experiences, their personal intimacy with God, and the torture would have been able to override that. Whereas if they had just allowed that simple part of themselves to just come out, that simple Messiah Snapshot of Chachman we're talking about, they would have been able to even withstand the torture. So there is, there is... You know, it's, it's very important that we, 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 we understand the idea is a very absolute idea, but people are, are complicated. People have layers to them. Right? And so how this Chachma comes out or when it comes out is going to be very, very different. So that, that can explain why there's these minorities of cases. And also why, for instance, in a generation where religiosity is not you know, the common awareness of things, we see Mr. Snavish much more around just identifying as a Jew, being able to say probably I am a Jew or I'm not a Jew, right? It can come, it can come down to that. The previous service speaks about this. Um, just the ability to, to, to acknowledge that I am a Jew regardless of giving meaning to what that means. Okay. The last thing is free will. Yeah, I do want to get to the other free will, free will question. Yes. How do you explain people who die out without it being like a choice? That's so serious. Especially if you didn't choose anything. They were just killed. Like, is that an expression of the Messiah's nefesh of the choice? What are you asking? Like, we're discussing it in the, 
in the context of people making a decision to renounce Hashem or mm-hmm. to, so in the context that people are killed without having like just the fact that they're killed because they're Jews without having to make a decision it's the same category or it's like a different it's not a choice so but what are you asking? Like, to explain but that's not what we're talking about we're talking about the subject matter is why if everyone has Chachma every Jew has Chachma why it doesn't always happen that a Jew martyred him right? The fact that someone is killed for being a Jew without their having any in, say in the matter. Of, you so know, I'm asking if that but, has to do with Chachma still. Or not. It, I'm sorry. It does, but... But... Uh, it does, but nothing to do with what we're talking about. But there is an idea of martyrdom that has nothing to do with your choice and... There's a whole Kabbalistic discussion about it, and it's not really relevant right now. Okay. Um, the other thing is like this. There is an idea. I want to just talk about this. The last thing was about this free will thing. There is an idea that we have free will, which I'm going to elaborate more on in, in the second half of the class, although I've already taken most of the class already on the first half. But... Um, on a very simple level, you do not have free will all the time. Okay? What I'm saying now, I may backtrack from later on, but on a very basic level, you don't have free will all the time. Okay. For instance, let us use the case of a person um, gets very, very, very angry and acts violently. At the moment where they do extreme violence, is it correct to say that at that very instant they had the free will to stop themselves? And a good argument can be made from Torah sources, I don't really care what psychology says, from Torah sources that they did not have free will at that point. Um, Chaim Vital basically says that at, at, at the moment of sin you don't have free will. So why are you responsible for your sin? Before. That's right. You had free will to get your, to allow yourself to sink to that place. In other words, a person who gets so enraged that they commit horrific acts of violence, where was the free will? They got angry. They could feel the anger, right? We, yeah. And at this, they start feeling the anger. They had a choice, which is to what? To let the anger manifest. To let the anger manifest, or to take responsibility for that they're feeling angry and make a responsible choice, such as like walk out of the room. Right, or do something else. But they decided to let the anger well up and overtake them. And at that point, they're responsible for what they do under the influence of that anger. Does that make sense as an idea? Okay, now let's talk about this in a positive sense. Is it necessarily the case that mysterious nefesh comes like that? Or is it possible that this feeling of mysterious nefesh starts to well up inside the person? And if that's the case, is it not possible that a person can decide to suppress it, to ignore it, before it takes on its full strength? That's a thing we all experience, right? right? We all experience um, feelings, emotions, drives, building within us, right? And so there's a good argument to make that the the bulk of our free will is what we do at that point. Not once things have reached their full, full stage and completely were flooded with. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to say that's necessarily true that we don't have free will afterwards or anything else. 
So another thing you could simply say is that even a person who engages in who 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 who, who engages in idolatry or apostasy or anything like that, and God forbid, and, and doesn't doesn't undergo martyrdom, it may be that they made a conscious choice to suppress the chachma instinct before it became too powerful. Because we're not robots. We're sentient, self-directed beings. Does that make sense as well? Now, a consequence of that means that it would actually be quite hard for many people to go through with it. Go through with, you know, apostasy or something like that. They have to overcome something. They can, the chachma, the chach, they, they, they have to stop the chachma in its tracks before it gets too powerful. And they kind of have to keep it down. Now, we all know what happens when you try to repress something over and over and over and over and over again. That get easier? It often, it often gets harder, right? So you see an interesting phenomenon. You see people who are willing to convert to Christianity in order not to lose their social status and then foolishly risk their lives to do a few Jewish rituals in, 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 um, in, in Christian Spain. Why? Because as much as you can choose to suppress the Chachma, it, it pushes back. Okay? And so you have in cases where, 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 where you know, it gets harder and harder and harder and harder for a person to keep quieting that little voice of Chachma that keeps starting to get louder and louder. And at a certain point, they just, they, the, 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 the dissonance inside them is too much and they give in. And they, they actually, you know, do something which is risking their life for holding on to their Jewishness. Okay. So if you add these elements together, right? The number one, we're talking about the nature of something rather than like a fixed rule, like a mathematical law. Number two, our other human experiences probably do play a role in interfering and awakening the Chachma, right? And number three, we do have free will to suppress things before they fully take us over, right? If you add that all together, it's, it, we would expect that not every Jew in all circumstances would engage in martyrdom, but the majority of Jews. And what also makes sense to us that certain attitudes towards Judaism may make it harder to engage in martyrdom than others. Nothing to do with how religious you are, but what you conceive of religiosity to be. Yes? Um, if suppressing things doesn't make it go away, it makes it build up, then how is suppressing like, negative inclinations how does that not also build up into like a three-point? It does, which is why I shouldn't do it. You should instead do what? I mean, the, the, the simple thing is what you're supposed to do is what's called hesachadas, which is to move your mind off of it to something else, which is different. Um, basically, there's, there's, the key difference is one is acknowledgement and one is denial. So for instance, let's say I have a desire to do something very sinful, right? Suppressing it were to be to shut down that desire and then to try and create a narrative in my head that the desire doesn't exist. Um, and that's not going to work. Another thing you can do is to say, well, yeah, I have that desire. I mean, I have a, not a tzaddik. Of course I have that desire. Uh, but that desire comes from a relatively superficial part of myself and I have other important things I would like to do with my life and I am letting go of in, of holding on to that experience. When it comes back, we'll do the same thing yet later. Right? It's a similar thing. Like, let's say you get really angry. So what are you supposed to do? No, I'm going to be calm. Like, it doesn't work. Right? 
Um, but to acknowledge that you feel angry, but like right now you have other important things to do and like you know, decide how much you want to invest in with it. Like there, there, there is a very big difference between kind of a rejection of what you are experiencing and an acknowledgement of what you're experiencing and then what you do after that. Does that make sense? So when you acknowledge it, it doesn't build up? When you acknowledge it and then make a choice, now how do I want to deal with it? It's not going to build up. It may require that you deal with it in more sophisticated ways, setting it aside for now, coming back and dealing with it later. Maybe it's just a constant setting aside. I mean, like sometimes people deal with them stuff. Like sometimes people um, have certain issues um, that just don't go away, like in a therapeutic context. And the therapy basically consists of two points. One, learning to acknowledge and recognize the issue exists. And then you, once you are in that place, you are able then to deal with it in a constructive manner. And you just keep doing that the rest of your life. And you can live a relatively happy, healthy, normal life with just maintaining how you deal with that, whatever issue it is. I mean, I don't mean to belittle the therapy. Actually doing that in real life is very hard. But that's entirely different than not being able to accept that that part of you exists and trying to shut it out. Um, one of the key themes in Tanya is that the altar is very clear is you are not a holy person and you likely never will become one. And you should have no delusions and create a self-image of how holy you are. That can lead to a certain cynicism you might find in Chabad about how, you know, unless you're like a real tzaddik, like the Baal or the Rebbe, then we're all basically on some little deep down, self-absorbed, hedonistic monkeys. And like, you know, we're also deep down godly souls, but we're both. And, you know, never forget that, that, that both are true. So, but being able to be honest with yourself about that, at least momentarily, then gives you a kind of a, a maturity about what it means to set things aside and move, th- move on or, or come back and revisit it later. Um, it's very important. So you don't get that message and you keep just shutting out negative things. They, they will come. They'll just burst forth later. Or worse, you'll just learn to be out of touch with yourself completely and you'll lose the ability to have any meaningful experiences in life at all. And that's, that's far worse. You become a shell of a person. Okay. Um, free will. So that was, you know, I didn't think it was going to take that long, but it did. Okay. Now the question is free will. And I want to talk about free will um, and this Chachma thing in a little bit of a deeper way. Because I already, I already like, if I just wanted to wave away the free will question, I already did it. Right? But I don't think that's a good answer. The reason I don't think it's a good answer is like this. Free will, the Rambam says, is a fundamental part of Judaism. What does that mean that it's fundamental? How many principles of Judaism are there? How many fundamental principles of Judaism are there? There's 13. Rambam 13. Which one is free will? All of them. What? All of them. None of them. Oh. <laughs> because those are the 13 principles of Judaism. But what principle does Judaism itself rest on top of? Free will. Because what is Judaism? Our obligations and duties towards God. So who is God? What are these obligations? How are they communicated? Yeah. What is the response? Mashiach, right? Say all these different things, right? But that you are a being who can determine for yourself if you're going to be righteous or wicked be devout or rebellious. Like, that is a presupposition that everything else depends. There's no notion of a religion without that. Like, one of the reasons why traditionally Orthodox Judaism had a huge problem with psychology. Um, anyone know anything about the early history of psychology? People like Sigmund Freud and stuff? Okay. So one of the, one of the, one of the problems with, with psychology 
and whether this applies nowadays is, a, is, is an interesting question. Um, science is a very powerful thing. And the physical sciences are extremely powerful. And people like Sigmund Freud and others tried to have an idea that if we apply a kind of scientific thinking about human psychology, human psyche, we can do to the human psyche what scientists and engineers do to the physical world. Does that make a kind of sense? Now, would physical sciences work if the water gets to decide if it flows down? Right. You know, that very model takes the whole notion of, of free will and personal agency and basically tries to explain it away and get rid of it because it undermines that project. Okay, now, I will say something about modern psychology. M modern psychology, and I'm not, this not a, I'm not an expert in this field at all, but modern psychology has come to see, philosophy aside, that human beings, at least believing that they genuinely have personal agency and free will and self-determination and things like that, is critical for mental health. Um, so you have to develop a, at least a model that the person can believe about themselves, which takes seriously the fact that you're not a rock or water or some other like physical substance. Um, but this was a big issue. So one of the issues, if you look at like, is you know, do you think of a person in this kind of very, very mechanistic way or not? And then religion cannot exist in a psyche that relates to itself as just a product of influences, a product of causes. Okay. Now, I don't mean to say, oh, psychology is therefore bad. That, that was a, and so like, as that became less of an issue, there's maybe more of an openness to, to hear what psychology as a, as a discipline has to say. Okay. Well, now, if we're saying that the core of our religious instinct is chachma, it's going to be a problem to say that the Chachma is something that our free will has no relationship with directly. What do I mean? What I said previously is that we may have some free will about how much we allow the Chachma to manifest or not manifest, right? We may be able to suppress the Chachma or not. And maybe yes, maybe no. But, but what that would mean is that the, the actual connection to Hashem, which is, we said, rooted in Chachma, right? That's where Amuna comes from. That's where the Mishra comes from. That's where our whole sense of being with Hashem is, our sense of His presence. If all of that is built in, independent of our free will, then it means that on some level, the, 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 the religious sensibility is not something we can... We have, and that's something that relates to, uh, to us as, as, as choosing free beings. It's something that, okay, we, it's built in and you can either accept it or repress it and that's the extent of where your free will acts with your religion and it, it weakens the whole thing. Let me give you an example of what I mean going away from religion for a second. Um, I get hungry. Now, where does my free will relate to hunger? Can I choose not to be hungry? I can choose to eat. I can choose to act on my hunger. And when I choose to act on my hunger, what does that feel like? Does that feel like an act of agency or an act of capitulation? Does it feel like I am exercising my autonomy or I'm giving in? It feels like I'm giving in. You know why? Because the hunger is something that I have no control over. 
The hunger is something that I have zero agency over and I can choose to fight it or I can choose to give into it. Okay, but then, so like I'm choosing not to, not to stand up for myself. Now, uh, right, nobody feels like, wow, I'm, I'm living my life by giving into my you know, natural urges. It's just not, not, it's not, that doesn't work. It's the opposite, right? You know, the athlete feels like they have this agency because they're overcoming their natural urges, right? You know, you know, p- people who, people who, so how can you say my sense of God is like hunger? It's just built in. You, you see that, like, like, so what, my free will is to give in to the Chachma or not to give in to the Chachma? Like, it, 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 it erases the whole notion of you choosing to connect to God. Not, it doesn't exist at all, but it becomes, it becomes, it becomes a technicality, it becomes shallow. Like, if I'm eating, it's like, okay, I have to eat, I have no control over it. I, at best, I can decide to ignore it or not ignore it, to, 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 to be more or less responsible. It's something I have to give in to the need to eat. I just, I just give in to the built-in chachma and like, so then my whole religiosity is not really of my choosing. Not that I have zero control over it. Do you see how that's like, it, it, it's problematic to, to think that, that the, the, the sense of God is like, well, it's just built in. You can't do anything about it. The best you can do is accept it or repress it. So here's the question I want to ask you. Does the Chachma have free will? Not me as a person. Does the Chachma of the godly soul have free will? That's that's another that's another words I'm asking. Like I, as a person who have the chachma, so maybe I have to choose to accept or give it. But but the chachma itself, which is the thing that gives me a very sense of connection to Hashem, if that's just something that's built in, I have no control over it. Then uh, then it's not it's not then then, then 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 there's something missing about the religion about the religion being something that's free, something that's of mine, something that's that I choose, something that I'm standing in relationship with God. So is the Chachma, or put it is the Chachma's openness and devotion to Hashem freely chosen by the Chachma or not? And so this requires a little bit of abstract thinking, okay? What is the opposite of something that is freely chosen? Something that is imposed, Yes? If the openness to Hashem's truth that the Chachma exhibits is imposed on the Chachma, how open is the Chachma to Hashem? What? It's not that open, right? Does that make, does that make it kind of intuitive? Is it, it, think about it like this. If you're telling me something, right, and my willingness to listen to you is because... I feel that if I don't, then I'm going to lose my job. How, how really open am I and receptive to what you're saying? You're not. not that open, right? Can you impose openness from the outside? So if Chachma is truly open, the highest levels, remember we spoke with, the highest levels of Chachma are open to Hashem in his totality and his absoluteness. Could Chachma be an, something that is imposed? Could that openness of Chachma be imposed? No. So forget me as a complex person, my relationship with Chachma. The Chachma itself is kind of an act of free will. 
this is a little bit hard to think. Don't think of Chacham as, as a, I'm choosing to do or not to do something. Just think about it like in terms of this opposite of being imposed. Is something happening to the Chacham of the godly soul that is imposing on it, coercing it, compelling it to be open to Hashem's truth? No. The, the openness of the Chachma has to come from the Chachma itself. The Chachma has to freely give itself over to God. Otherwise, it couldn't be that open, could it? So what does that mean? There's a part of me which freely gives itself over to Hashem absolutely. That's the Chachma of the godly soul. And then I, as a conscious human being, can choose to embrace that part of myself or reject that part of myself or whatever. So this is very important to understand. Chachma is not... It's not like a thing that Hashem created that has a, a built-in nature. Okay, like water has the nature to flow, right? Fire has the nature to be hot. Does the flowingness of water stem from the water itself or it stems from how the Creator made it? Okay. In fact, in Hebrew, there's a word teva, one, which is nature. One of the meanings of the word teva comes from the word minting, like a coin is a matbeya, it's minted. What does that mean? That you take a piece of metal and you impose on it a shape. So the shape of the coin is really something that the coin has no responsibility for. The, the, the flowingness of the water is not something the water can take any responsibility. It doesn't come from the water. God imposes that form of being onto it and makes the fire hot and etc. Does the, is the chachma have a nature in that sense of having some form being imprinted and imposed on it. God comes to the soul and says, you will be open to me, I command it. That's not openness. Whatever it is that allows the Chachma to be that open has to come from the Chachma itself. So, like what is the nature of Chachma? It doesn't have a nature? So it depends on what meaning of the word nature using. Does it have tendencies? Yes. Does it have a nature in the sense of something that is imprinted upon it? Something that is imposed upon it? No. Is there any chachma that's not open to Godliness? We're using chachma in the technical term that we're talking about it here. I'm not using right, it. I'm saying, like, is there any case where chachma is? No. So how is that a choice? Ah, uh, so let us think about this. This is the profound paradox of choice. If you, if you, if something is not being imposed from without, right? Then it, it's coming entirely from yourself, right? If it comes entirely from yourself, how much of yourself is invested in it, given over to it? What? Your false self. So what's left of you to choose otherwise? The reason why when we choose something we then can change our mind is because we did not fu- it wasn't fully a choice. There's an interesting thing that something which is, and this is explained in the Chassidus, something which is a full choice is absolute. Something that, you, something that you can reverse your choice after the fact is because to some level your involvement, your engagement with that, whatever the that is, is not entirely from yourself. So you retain some part of yourself outside of it and you can decide to pull yourself back out again. So when there's a real choice, there's not really even a question of free will. When there's a, when, when there's a, real, when there's a real choice in the sense that something is in no way being imposed from without, then it, then it involves an entire investment of yourself, absolutely. And that's really what's happening with the Chachma. The Chachma is a, is a level of being which gives itself entirely over to Hashem freely. And in doing so, there's nothing left of the Chachma to be anything else, to view anything differently. 
And it's because, so in other words, like this, it's not, is Hashem in the Chachma because Hashem makes space for himself to get into the Chachma, or is Hashem in the Chachma because the Chachma made space for Hashem to be there? You you see, so there's, this is not explained in Tanya, but this is explained in other Chassidus. But what comes, what's important to understand is that Chachma doesn't, Chachma doesn't, is not completely open and devoted to Hashem because that's how Hashem made it. I'm not going to address the question of free will as a paradox in itself. If God creates everything, then how does anything have free will? That's a separate discussion. But inasmuch as we accept the idea of free will can exist at all, true Chachma can only be a free will. So now let's go, let's, remember I said about eating? Okay, well, I'll give a different example. Um, and this, I don't mean to say this is equivalent to Chachma, I just mean to bring a contrast. Um, do you have other urges other than eating that when you um, act on them, you don't feel like you're giving in? What would be an example of something like that? What? No, those are the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you might not pay so much attention to it because it's like, but like, something where you feel the opposite. You feel a sense of personal... Um, agency, personal autonomy in acting on that urge. Choosing to be nice to someone. That's interesting. Why is, what's the difference between eating and being nice? And it could be because some part of yourself has chosen to value being nice. And so now that urge is not just an urge I can choose to act on or repress, but the urge itself is a manifestation of some degree of my, my, my autonomy to value something, right? Now, what if there's a part of my soul which chooses to value God absolutely and unconditionally? That part of my soul will be totally open to him and totally connected to him and will sense him, right? And that part of my soul is called Chachma. So it's, so what I would the Chachma is a kind of a state of free choice. Chachma is not like, if you feel like you're being controlled by the chachma, you're not really sensing the chachma. You understand what I'm saying? And so that could happen. Like a person could have a mysterious nefesh experience and afterwards, like because they don't know how to relate to that part of themselves, it feels like something took over them retrospectively, even though at the time it felt very authentic. Okay? So the deeper answer of how is free will and this idea of mysterious nefesh and like you can't... The reason I cannot separate myself from God or deny God is not because something is preventing me, not because I was made that way, but because there's a part of me that is the most essential part, and that part of me has freely given itself over to God completely. And so it can't stop being itself. I can't stop being me. And that's who I am. Okay? And by the way, you have a very similar expression. Does anyone know one thing that God cannot do? It says it in, our, it says it in the Medrash. There's something that says God, God cannot do. It uses the Hebrew phrase, Eni yochel, I am not able to do so. Can't think of anything God can't do? Replace the Jewish people. 
to exchange the Jewish people for another nation, I'm not able to do so. And my question is, who's stopping God? Who's stopping him? No. Nothing's stopping him. Because here's the point. No, no, no. If something is stopping you, it means you could. It's just something is stopping you. If, but if he has chosen us that means his entire self is invested in that. What stands outside of that relationship now to decide otherwise? It's the same thing. It's the, no, it's the way our Chachma relates to him is the way he relates to us. Now, this is a very deep idea and really it deserves a lot more elaboration. Um, but I do think it's important because when you read Tanya, you can mistakenly read it as if Hashem programmed this little part of ourselves, and like we can't really control that and maybe we have some ability to suppress it. And what that does is it undermines the richness and the legitimacy of what it means to be in a relationship with God, to really be serving God, to, to, for Judaism to be real. As the Rambam says, the foundation, the whole religion rests on is that you, you choose to be righteous or wicked. You choose to be devout or accept God or not. And if the part of me that accepts God is built in by default and I have, and it's not free, then, then the whole Judaism is kind of a, a suspect. And we understand that that part, it's not like I not that the Chachma chose God today. It's like the Chachma is a, is a part of me that it's, it defines itself by its devotion to God, by its giving itself over completely to God. And therefore it has nothing left of itself outside of that. And the parallel to that is the way Hashem relates to the Jewish people. And there's a good remember this rule. If something is stopping you, that means you could do it. That's why you need something to stop you. I'll connect this back to Purim just for a moment. You're familiar with the idea that one should drink until they don't know the difference between um, cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you're aware that nobody thinks that that means you're supposed to get so drunk that you lose all sense of moral sensibility. Yeah, okay, so then what does it mean? There are many explanations. One explanation is very simple, it's like this. Why do I think that bad things are bad and good things are good? I think bad things are bad because I've learned about how bad they are. And I know that good things are good because I've learned about how Good they are. So what's stopping me from doing the bad things? My knowledge of how bad they are. What's um, propelling me to do good, good things? My knowledge of how good they are. But what that implies is that absent that knowledge, I could do the bad things and I wouldn't do the good things. Right? Does that make sense? What if there's a part of me that can only do good and can't do bad? Does it need to know that the good things are good and the bad things are bad? So that's the part you're supposed to get in touch with on Purim. You don't need to know that Haman is cursed and Mordechai is blessed. The cursedness of Haman and the blessedness of Mordechai is, is a manifestation of, of who you are. And so you don't, need, you don't need that knowledge to constrain and motivate you anymore. And frankly, drinking alcohol does not help most people get to that place. So... So therefore, we connected it back to Purim and to Pesach, and you're seeing a theme here, yeah? Okay. Tomorrow we will do, what does it say? Chassidus on Pesach. We'll do Chassidus on Pesach. Okay.
No, no questions. Yes. Um, so it's like a like 